TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Welcome to Spill It. Spillet is true stories told in front of a live audience. Everyone has a story. Are you ready to spill it? Hey guys, welcome to the Spillet Podcast. I'm Josh Campbell, the creative director of Spillet. Spillet is true storytelling told in front of an audience. In our second episode from our Just City event, we're going to hear a story from Rattlebones Jones. This story was told on September 22nd at America. Enjoy. All right, we got one more story, guys. Um, Rattlebone Jones. <laughs> I was going to give him a big segue, but wait till you see this suit. Mm-mm-mm. Look at this suit. Rattlebone Jones, everybody. My name is Rattlebone Jones. <laughs> And I am in the injustice business. I don't usually dress like this to come to spill it. But I came from a wedding. And love was a worthy enough cause to put my daytime clothes on. So I have the privilege of sharing office space with the people at Just City. And before I begin, I would like you to know that for the first time in the state of Tennessee, our lawmakers are asking to hear the defense perspective about new laws, about sentencing reform, and they, that's because of Just City. That's because of someone lobbying for change backed by the people of this community. And uh, earlier today, uh, I was asked as a defense attorney to go speak on a whole day set aside for sentencing reform and change that was really probably arranged by Just City. So you're here for a worthy cause. So, you know, maybe, like, you know, drop off 20 bucks or something on the way out so these guys can keep going and pay their rent from the oppressive landlord standing at the microphone. Now. Okay. I, uh, I do really violent criminal defense. Um, I was assigned in the seventh grade in a mock trial to defend my friend, Tony, who was typecast for the role (laughs) in a fake trial in the seventh grade. And even though it was a fake trial, there was this moment where I had to stand up and rise and address the jury. I was the, the only thing standing between Tony 
and, and it's a doom. And in that moment, I, I just sort of knew what I wanted to do when I was going to be an adult. And uh, I was too chicken shit to do the work. But the best way to have a passion for justice is to taste injustice. So, you know, the universe forced me into being passionate. And uh, I've had the privilege of defending uh, seven or eight men who faced the death penalty. None of them have ever received the death penalty. None of them uh, face a capital sentence anymore. But I have two more coming up in the spring. So keep your fingers crossed that we can keep the streak alive. But I want to tell you tonight about the first time I was ever assigned that awesome responsibility, which was a lifelong dream. In a death penalty case, you don't just get a court-appointed lawyer, you get two. Because they give you every opportunity in the world. They give you actual resources to defend somebody. And they're willing to listen to your arguments, which they don't do for most people. But when it's life or death, they'll actually hear you out. And so I was assigned to defend uh, a young man in a town about an hour and 40 minutes north of here. It's a town called Ripley. And they're known for having very good tomatoes. <laughs> the best part about going to court in Ripley was to buy two bags of tomatoes on the side of the road on the way back. In order to face the death penalty, there has to be something about the murder that makes it worse than your average everyday Memphis murder. It's called an aggravator. And an aggravator is something that makes it so bad that we need to have this big public debate to make an example out of this defendant. And in this case, there were, there's a penitentiary right by Ripley in the town of Henning. And it's important for gangs to protect their people in the penitentiary and get them well taken care of, get them supplied with things that can help them on the inside. And there were two gangs who were having a war over that particular penitentiary and who was going to be running stuff in and out of it. The gangs, one was the vice lords and one was the gangster disciples. And so there was a series of, of drive-by shootings and eventually the vice lords shot up the gangster disciples and killed a few dudes. And then one of the vice lords cracked 
and he like snitched on his own people. And so they charged like 12 guys with murder in the drive-by shooting who had been in these three cars that drove by and spread bullets. And what you have to do, the, the actual document that charges someone with a crime is called an indictment. The indictment has to list two things, the people who are charged and the people who are going to be the witnesses. And so it listed all the people who were charged. And the last guy on the sheet was named Jonathan Cannon. And then it lists all the people who are going to be witnesses. And the last name was Jonathan Cannon, which was not a smart move, in my opinion, <laughs> to tell the other 11 accused murderers who was going to be testifying against them. And um, Jamel Buck was one of the people accused of murder. If I found dead in the next couple days, it was Jamel Buck. I just wanted <laughs> you to know that. I wasn't going to use names tonight, but it's Jamel Buck if I go missing. So, so um, Jamel Buck was like the enforcer. He was Luca Brazzi. He was the assassin of his gang. And he was very effective. And so, um, because he was cooperating, Jonathan Cannon was let out of jail. Um, they told him, like, you know, like, stay in Nashville or east of there. He came back to see his girlfriend. And when he did, some people came to his door at 4 o'clock in the morning and shot him 32 times. So, the aggravator in this case that makes the murder worse than a regular murder is that they assassinated a witness which is pretty serious obstruction of justice right but they couldn't figure out who did it they couldn't figure out which of the other 11 guys it probably was and uh, eventually they developed some information on Jamel Buck it's pretty good information. Jamel Buck's in on another charge, and his cellmate says that he confessed to him. His best friend says that he confessed. And then Jamel Buck's brother also tells law enforcement that Jamel has confessed to him. And Jamel's a pretty dangerous guy. I mean, he's, he's like killing a lot of people, like six or seven. And um, so law enforcement goes to talk to Jamel. And they say, hey, Jamel, um, we already sort of know what happened. We just want to get your side of things. And they start talking it out. And in the middle of the conversation, Jamel goes, oh, you're talking about me? Me, Jamel? Nah, man. It was the other Jamel, because there's one other Jamel who lived in Ripley. And that was my Jamel. 
for reasons I still don't understand, but I suspect Jamel Buck was working for law enforcement. He said, nah, man, not me, the other Jamel. And they went like this, thank you for clearing that up. And they went and arrested my Jamel, who was in college in Indiana. Everybody asks you when you're a defense attorney, how can you stand for somebody who's guilty? And that is never hard. That is never hard. I can stand there and make sure that everything is done correctly. And if he goes to jail, I did my best and he had a fair trial. And that's justice, even though it's hard. But standing there with an innocent man is fucking terrifying. That's what's hard. Because the only thing standing between me and him and death is if they're gonna really hear us and listen, right? So we do everything we can. We investigate everything. And we say to my Jamel, Jamel, where were you at the time of the murder? He says, I was with my friends, John and Eric and Skip. So we make a phone call to John and Eric and Skip. And I make arrangements to go up and see them the next week. And we're gonna see them on Thursday. And on Tuesday night, John and Eric are found dead in the front seat of their car. My clients alibi witnesses. So, I found out later they were also Jamel Buck's alibi witnesses. He didn't want them to tell where they really were. Now they never will. So that left Skip. And uh, Skip didn't want to talk to us after that. <laughs> I got to say, I kind of feel where Skip was coming from. <laughs> So Skip got the hell out of Ripley and moved to Memphis. And we started a couple months later, we were like, well, Skip, you know, now that you're down here, maybe you can swing by the office or something. And he was like, okay. Skip was having a New Year's Eve party. He opened the door and somebody shot him in the face. But Skip lived. And I went to the hospital and Skip said, Jamel Buck shot me in the face. I was pretty sure it wasn't my Jamel because my Jamel was in jail with no bond. So Skip was recovering. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping Jamel Buck doesn't have my phone number. And uh, so we go up there for like our, our court appearance and they give us the paper of the indictment. And it says, you know, 
Here are the people charged, including your Jamel. And here are the witnesses. Only it's the first time I've ever seen this. It's like, we're not going to tell you who the witnesses are. The witnesses are confidential informant number one, confidential informant number two, confidential informant number three. And I said, how am I supposed to like get ready and prepare for the case if I don't know who's involved in the case? And they said, yeah, that's a good question, but um, when we told y'all the witnesses last time, you killed them. <laughs> so we're not going to tell y'all who the witnesses are this time. We fought about that for a while. And Judge was like, you got to tell them who the witnesses are. And so we show up at first, like, real hearing. And I'm demanding they set a bond for my client. And so we walk in the courtroom, and they go, here's the statements. Here's the confidential forms. Number one is Jamel Buck's cellmate. Number two is Jamel Buck's best friend. Number three is Jamel Buck's brother. And number four is Jamel Buck. Four people they'd interviewed. And they said, we're here, and we brought in a witness. We're going to bring in a witness next week because we oppose your client getting a bond. It's very rare in a capital case. But since this all was resting on the word of a serial killer, I thought it was worth a shot. And so we go up there to Ripley, and it's the first time I'm really going to speak in a death penalty case, and my partner gets detained in Memphis, like on some other business. And so I go up there by myself. It's my first time in a case of this magnitude. The guy who really knows what he's doing is not there. And uh, I drive up to the courthouse, and the National Guard is there. And the Shelby County SWAT teams are there. And they have snipers on the roof of the courthouse. And they pull every single person who drives to the courthouse out of their car. And they have dogs that sniff for bombs and firearms sniff up your car. And I was so glad I didn't have my weed on me that day. <laughs> but. That would have been embarrassing as hell. <laughs> you, got, you got to do something for the high blood pressure when you're dealing with this kind of shit, you know? Okay. So, you know, while we're giggling here, the moment that every defense attorney dreams of, dreams of, and hopes to have in life, is that moment in the movie, My Cousin Vinny. Where Vinny and Miss Mona Lisa Vito, they go out for breakfast and they get some grits. And you gotta ask the question, oh, you were just putting your grits on the stove. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm a southerner. We take pride in our grits, right? And he's like, well, if you looked out the window when you put your grits on, and then you're eating your grits when you heard the gunshot, it's not five minutes. You know, this is like 20 minutes. How do your grits cook faster? How does water boil faster 
you knew a grit on your stove than any other place on earth, you know? And he just like tears the guy up about some grits. I'm like, everybody in the courtroom knows grits. That's, that's like the moment you dream of, like Perry Mason moment. Gotcha. Gotcha on some grits. And I'm kind of out in the country like Vinny was, you know, and I'm like, well, I don't blend, as they say in the movie. And they got the National Guard out, like never seen him before or since. It's like a John Grisham novel. Half the town is there, because Jamel Buck is there under guard of the National Guard, and they're screaming at him, you know, because he's killed all their kids. They're pissed. And it's like a riot. And here I, I walk in the middle of this, like, first time. <laughs> Faking it till I make it. <laughs> Just acting like I know what I'm doing. Thankful that my weed wasn't in the car today. Okay. So I walk in, and we do, they hand me the hearings, they hand me the stuff, and I'm looking, and I see for the first time, it's Jamel Buck's cellmate, his best friend, his brother, and him. Like, what am I gonna do? I don't know what I'm gonna do. And the prosecutor's going through with him, and they say, uh, where were you at the time of the murder? And he was like, oh, I was uh, up in Dyersburg. I was picking them purple hulls. For those of you city folks who don't know, a purple hull is a pea, like a black-eyed pea, but it's purple, not black. And I'm writing my notes as fast as I can. And they go through and they're like, thank you for your bravery of coming in here with 200 people with assault rifles guarding you. You'd be safe out there, which I'm reading is like, don't murder yourself. <laughs> my guy isn't doing it. He's locked up. And so I get up. Now I got to dance with the cobra, you know. I don't know what he's going to say. I don't know what he's going to do. And we, I'm, I'm trying to keep it going. I'm trying to get whatever I can. And... Uh, We come back around to his alibi. Who's your alibi? I was up on the farm. I was, I was doing some day labor. What's the name of the farm? I don't remember. Well, do you have a paycheck? No, nah, man, it was cash, you know, like under the table, you know, some day labor. Well, who'd you go with? My mama gave me a ride. She was picking two because Mama's probably not going to go against Jamel Buck. I'm, like, I'm not a dead. I'm like running out of shit to think about, you know? There's no paper trail at the farm. They have a time clock up there? No. Yeah, I didn't go anywhere. And then it like hits me that like, first job I ever had was picking shit in a farm. 
and uh, I used to have to pick corn. And the corn stalks grow up like seven or eight feet tall. And it's like, uh, you get up there first thing in the morning, and it's like hot as shit. It's like August, and uh, you got to wear raincoats because all the dew is coming down on you. You know, you look like a fisherman. And you're, you're going through, and you're picking the corn, and it's hot, and you're in a rubber suit, and you're sweating everywhere, and it's miserable. And there's that indictment. I'm just like hoping something's gonna happen. And then I look at it again, and I realize, I was picking that corn in August, and this murder happened on May 1st. I'm like, no, you can't even plant purple whole peas on May 1st. You sure as shit can't pick one on May 1st. I say, Your Honor, could I have just a moment, please? Not Google purple whole peas. Ripley, Tennessee. Be thankful for Google, people, because, like, that shit happened 20 years ago. My guy was screwed. And he says the Purple Hole Pea Festival is, like, July 27th. And for optimal planting, you plant them on, like, June 15th or later. I stroll back over, and I say, you sure you can't remember this farmer? He said, yeah. So you're picking purple holes. You sure about it? Yeah. Man, I'd sure like to meet the first farmer to ever plant purple holes in the middle of March so you could pick them on May 1st. Because he, like, had his whole crop that you were picking on May 1st. He was like, yeah. I said, you know that's a record, right? Because, like, the Department of Agriculture says the earliest a purple whole piece ever been picked was on June 29th. And you're like, two months, you guys are like record breakers. Like, you're, you're like history. Did you guys report this to me? And he was like, no. I was like, you sure you can't get this name? Yeah. You sure you're picking purple holes on May 1st? You sure you weren't at Jonathan Cannon's house? You know, but like everybody knows. Everybody knows. <laughs> that some bitch was not picking purple hole pigs. <laughs> and the prosecutor gets real nervous. And so the way it works is like, if you a lot of people consider if you win the death penalty case, you don't get death, but you still get life in prison. And she comes off of that too. Do you think your client would be interested in 25 years? I'm like, for being innocent? Like, no. And I walk off. And I drive back to Memphis like, you know, I'm a badass, grits don't cook in no five minutes, you know. <laughs> I'm up here showing these stupid ass country people how to practice law, you know. And I get back and the guy who's like really done death penalty work is like, you turned down 25 years, like what the 
fuck were you doing? Do you know what a big deal that is? And I was like, he's innocent. He was like, so? So, do you know how impossible it is to win a death penalty case? Because before you can be on a jury, you have to promise that you are willing morally to kill the guy. So the jury's like stacked. And I was like, well, no, I didn't know that since my first time and I've never picked a jury in a death case before. <laughs> He's like, this is unbelievable. You fucked the whole thing up, man. So, I didn't mess it up that bad because that purple whole piece was some shit. Okay. And they were nervous about their case and they went and they like looked into it and they researched it. And they come back and their answer was, would your guy take 13 years? Which is the absolute minimum you can get on a second degree murder if you're such a good person that they go below the minimum. And so we go in to meet with Majumel who was a college student in Indiana. And I said, don't do it, Jamil, you're innocent. Everybody around here knows about Purple Hole Peas. I mean, there's a Purple Hole Pea festival here. <laughs> and my partner says, you better sign, Jamil, or they are gonna kill you. Jamel thinks about it. We co drive up there again. And Jamel says, I'm going to take it. And I said, Jamel, you're never going to get your life back. You will never be the same when you come out. They'll never let you come back to society. And you're innocent, Jamel. You didn't do this. Jamel thinks about it. And my partner says, you know, he's right, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because he's never been through this before. And Jamel sleeps on it again. And we go into court. And I'm asking him, like, to the last second, like, don't do this, Jamel. And Jamel takes that 13 years like a man. He doesn't flinch. That's about as bad as I ever felt walking out of a courtroom. And I get in the road. I'm driving back to Memphis. And uh, there's this street light I go through every time. And it's red. And I have to sit there. And I was probably there 60 seconds. 90 seconds, but it was like the whole universe stopped. I was at that light for like nine minutes. And I'm just sitting there. And I'm like desperate for this light to change. And it won't change. 
and I look over, and on the right is a sign that I've driven by for a year, going back and forth to court. And it's a sign at that street light for the only two things around. And it says, turn right here for the penitentiary at Henning. Turn left for the Alex Haley Roots Museum. I'm telling Jamel, my Jamel, he's going to get a fair shake here. He knew better. And the phone rang. There's my partner. And he said, you just achieved your dream. You just saved that man's life. And the light turned green. I drove back to Memphis. But my Jamil, he's in timeout for another six and a half years. Justice is simply an ideal that we aspire to achieve. But everyone in this room knows that we fall far short far too often. Thank you for listening. Spill It Podcast is a joint production between Spill It Memphis and the OAM Network. For more information, go to spillitmemphis.org and the oamnetwork.com.